Well, hello and welcome to episode 179 of The Call Room. Uh, I'm your host, David Griffiths, and I can promise you that I am super excited about this episode because it's the live recording of the time that we got to sit down with Steve Grossman from Sierra Nevada uh, and learn all about his story and all about the Sierra Nevada story. It was an awesome night. Uh, a huge thank you to everyone who came along to Beer Deluxe in Fed Square. And of course, uh, thanks to all the staff there. Uh, well over 100 people. Um, it was packed out, it was sold out, and it was such a great vibe as hopefully you'll pick up in the episode today. Uh, it's obviously enough a live recording, and so there's a bit of background noise at times. But uh, as ever, I really hope that the quality of the, uh, the conversation makes up for some of the background noise and that you are able to sit through and really learn some great things about one of the breweries, which is absolutely iconic uh, in the minds of people who enjoy and love craft beer. Uh, while I'm doing thank yous, a big thank you to everyone who came along a few days earlier to our Hair of the Dog breakfast at Bidlux, uh and to the brewers uh, from Three Ravens, from Deeds, from Dollar Bill and from Tallboy and Moose, uh, who all made their way there the morning after the AIBA Awards, uh, and many of them had very successful nights uh, at those awards. They still managed to dust themselves off and come along for breakfast. And again, all of the cool rooms who came along and made that such a fantastic day, uh, a big thank you, to, thank you to all of you. Uh, it's genuinely a huge pleasure to get to run events like that and hang out with great people who love great craft beer. Uh, but look, aside from all of those things, that's looking to the past. Let's look to the future briefly before we get underway with today's interview. Uh, the next event that we have in the cool room is going to be one of our online tastings. Uh, and that's with Bacchus Brewing uh, from Queensland. I think the tasting packs for that one are already sold out, but check out our online store uh, and you'll be able to see uh, what's available there for the Bacchus event. And then talk about huge deals and uh, amazing events that we've got coming up. As many of you will know, we have teamed up with Carwin Sellers, uh, our very good friends out there in Preston, uh, for a special edition black box of 12 beers, 12 different limited releases from 12 of Australia's best breweries. Uh, and we're going to have four online events uh, tasting those beers. So I think Carwin have sold out. Check out our store to make sure that you have those beers in front of you. A really amazing opportunity to have 12 different brewers, uh, three different brewers per episode. They're big beers. We're not going to want to drink any more than three in a setting. Uh, and we'll be able to listen to the brewers discuss their different beers and ask each other questions and interact about some really amazing beers that you basically can't get anywhere else. Um, I am so pumped and stoked about that. And look, in terms of our online store, you can obviously find that by searching Cool Room Shopify uh, in whatever search engine you use, and that'll punt you over the page. Uh, the black box should be there, but if you go to the Sierra Nevada tab, uh, you'll get some really amazing deals, or at least you will if you're listening to this uh, podcast soon after its release. These are not the kinds of deals that we can have up there for too long. Uh, as you'll hear from the pricing, um, amazing stuff. The Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale, it's the first beer we talk about here. Uh, you can get that for a six pack of that for $25 or a whole slab for 99 
check out the other prices uh, online that for other retailers in the city. There's nothing like that in terms of those kinds of deals. The Torpedo, uh, again, we discussed that one in this episode. Uh, big beer, $35 for a six-pack, 130 for a slab. That's amazing value. And then a whole lot of really limited releases. We've got the Atomic Torpedo, the Big Little Thing, the West Coast IPA, the Ruthless Rye, the Bigfoot Barley Wine, and um, finishing off in our conversations today, uh, we've got the Narwhal 473ml barrel-aged Imperial Stout. It is an amazing beer, as you'll hear when we talk about it. Uh, $60 for a four-pack of that, again, that is amazing value. So check out the Sierra Nevada tab in our online store and uh, get your order in quickly. Uh, it's only thanks to the, uh, the kindness of Sierra Nevada and of Phoenix Beers, who are importer here in Australia, that we're able to offer those beers for this kind of price. Uh, tell your friends, get in there and get amongst it. And obviously, by buying beers, you support the podcast uh, and all that we do. We really look forward to uh, you listening to this episode. Give us some feedback about what you think about it. Rate and review the podcast wherever you find it. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on social media so that you always know about our upcoming events, both in person and online, uh, and you'll never miss the opportunity to be along at amazing events like this, where we sit down at Beer Deluxe with Steve Grossman from Sierra Nevada and learn all about his story in beer. I am confident, my friend, that that will be the quietest round of applause that we will have as we explore some of the beers tonight. Steve, welcome to Melbourne. Welcome to Australia. Thank you. Hello. It's been a few years since I've been here. I love Melbourne. The beer scene, I have to say it properly. Melbourne, I think is how we say it, yeah. My wife went to university here for a while. She always tells me I don't pronounce the R. So, in Melbourne. So, it's been a few years. COVID put a little damper on that, but it's great to be back again. And the scene has... Uh, increased tremendously since I was here four years ago. All these new beers, it's awesome. So you guys are doing uh, some good things here. It's an absolute pleasure to be welcoming you. Uh, it's the first time you've been on the podcast, the first time you've been here as part of our show. Uh, but please do pass on to our friends Terence and Byron, yes. our love. Uh, they are long-time uh, recipients of our, of our love, and we'd love to have them on the show as well. I sure will. Excellent. Look, let's get underway. For, for newcomers to the brewery, for people who've never tasted Sierra Nevada before, I don't know how that could happen, but let's just imagine that that's the well, case. Well, maybe you can... Ask the show of hands. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a born school teacher. Show of hands if you've never drunk Sierra Nevada before. Well, there we go. Exit. Oh, wait. (laughs) So only about four or five. Okay. Only about four or five out of the hundreds who are here with us in the room tonight. But let's, let's let's indulge ourselves. Let's imagine that we're arriving today at the brewery. What's it going to be like as we arrive? Give us a bit of, paint us a bit of a picture of what the, what the feel of the place is. Uh, I will paint you a picture of the brewery. Um, we started in 1980 in Chico, California. It was in Northern California, a college town where my brother and I went to college. And the picture of the brewery has changed dramatically throughout those 40 years. If you were to visit the brewery, if you were to have visited the brewery in 1980, there would have been a small... Quonset hut metal building that looked very crude because that's what it was. <laughs> and when you visit it today, you will see a very sophisticated 
brewery with uh, copper vessels, um, many, many fermenters, hop fields. Um, the brewery is constantly expanding. So if you were to visit the brewery today, you would probably start out with a tour, which takes about an hour, and then ending up in our tasting room to try some of our uh, year-round beers as well as specialties. Uh, we do have a pilot brewery as well as our two main breweries. Uh, we have a 100-barrel system and a 200-barrel. So for those who don't know barrels and hectoliters, it's about 1,500 hectoliters or or the other one is uh, about 3,000, so um, pretty big. So you will see you will see a very modern brewery these days. And Steve, the other question that I need to get out of the way at the start is, what's your official title and what's your official role? I've listed you as global man at that's large. A, that's a great question. So <laughs> many years ago, I gave myself a title of brewery ambassador, and that was before there were all sorts of ambassadors in the beer business. Now everyone's an ambassador, but I gave myself that title. I uh, ran our beer camp program. I started that where we have people come in to brew beer with us. I do our international business, uh, so I spend my day actually talking to a lot of people who want to sell our beer around the world, and by telling them no, they can't do that. So much <laughs> of my much of my day is spent uh, rejecting people, mm, uh, breaking hearts, but, but very nicely, I must must add. And I do a lot of. Well, speaking engagements. So um, just relay a lot of brewery information and work with our salespeople. I started out when the brewery started being a salesperson and did that for many years and now do a few other things. How many countries in the world is Sierra Nevada available? We are in now, I think, about 20 countries. But I must say... That export is only about 2.5% of our business. Um, we don't do a lot of export. Um, we were very reluctant to start doing export because we really want to control the quality of our beers. And we found out that all the people approaching us to do export, this was 20-something years ago, didn't have refrigeration capacity. That's one of our requirements. Um, and they didn't have enough available staff to look after our products. So we, we rejected all export opportunities for many, many years. Then finally, we noticed there's a lot of our gray market beer around the world that is not looked after properly. So 20 years ago, we started going to the UK. A gentleman kept hounding us and saying, I want your beer in the UK. And he would find refrigeration, so he went there. And I must say, Phoenix Imports, life started... After me in particular, I think life's out of the room, but... It's good. We can talk, we can talk we nicely can talk about, about him while he's now. out of the room. So oh, no, he's back now. Life hounded me for how many years, Life? About two or three years. Three good years before we agreed because we had to make sure we had proper refrigeration in place. And then we finally went to Australia, I think, 11 years ago now. Yeah. So we've been here for about 11 years. So... Many, we're in a few countries, so if you look at a lot of breweries in the States, uh, breweries smaller than us, they're in more countries than we are. Um, we have a lot of countries in Europe, but we, it's not a big part of our business. We, we reject most, as I said a few minutes ago, we reject a lot of um, inquiries because we don't have the ability to look after the beer properly. 
I'm fascinated to hear your answer to this question. One of the questions that we traditionally ask guests on the call room is, what's the first craft beer you ever had? And so many brewers and people involved in the industry say Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, the beer that's in front of us now. Yep. But that clearly wasn't the first beer you ever had, I presume, <laughs> and either it was a long wait until it happened. What was the first beer memory that you have? Well, I've got a lot of beer memories, but some of them aren't. I must say when I was 15 years old, some of them weren't craft because there was no such thing. It was whatever we could find the cheapest and have someone buy for us. But um, I do recall there were a few beers that stick out in my memory. First, it was Ballantyne's India Pale Ale, which was a beer some of you might, if you know history of American beer, it was a beer that was brewed in New York and Asia. It was a... It was an IPA, but certainly British style, so not very hoppy, but a lot of malt, and it was aged for eight months in oak barrels. I remember that very, very well. I remember we were drinking a lot of British beers, so I would say Sam Smith's. But really the first craft beer, there were two. Anchor beer, Anchor Steam, Anchor Porter, was a big inspiration for us. And we got to be good friends with Fritz Maytag uh, when my brother was building the brewery. And then I've got to also say New Albion, which Jack McAuliffe started uh, a few years before we, we went. To, we, we started, and he made some really interesting beers. I remember the exact day that I had it, too. But, um, where, where were you? Where were you? When okay, you had... I, you're going to get me down the rabbit hole on this one. But So I raced bicycles and um, for many, many years. And I was at a bike race in a town called Nevada City, which is up in the foothills of this, up in the Sierras. And I did the race. My brother was in the crowd, came up with a beer. You need to try this. It was... Um, <laughs> How fast after, were you going at the, the time? Or? Luckily, I'd finished. Um, <laughs> and it was New Albion. And it was, it was like a revelation. There was, you know, in the tall, skinny bottles that... There was nothing like that at the time, so that was the first one. And was that the time that you looked at each other and said, we need to start a brewery, or...? No, well, actually, we were home brewers way before that. So we had been drinking a lot of good home brew, and I must say that young, ripe ages of 13 and 15... Um, My son's 11. It worries me that this okay, is like yeah. 24 months away. Don't let him hear this podcast. <laughs> so... We were home brewers, and a friend of ours' father was a home brewer, and we used to sneak his home brewer all the time because he had a keg in the patio, and and he worked. We would walk home from school right by the house and 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 sample a bit, and we sampled quite a bit, and he he didn't realize he he kept co coming to us and say, "What's happened in my beer? I don't think I have a leak in my keg, but <laughs> there's none left." So he said, "Okay." And I, Ken and I talked about this a little while. He told Ken, I'm going to show you how to beer, brew beer once, and then you better do it on your own. So that's how we started and drank a lot of homebrew. So the idea was hatched. It was, for, it was forming. It was formulating, actually. I, I'm really worried about the fact that that story... I can hear from my wife's nervous laughter just means that I'm not going to be allowed to homebrew any time before my okay. son turns 29 or something like that. What kind of beer did your dad make? It was my friend's dad. He A made ales. He made hoppy ales. So that's where we got the taste, for sure. And in terms of this beer that's in front of us now, recipes change. I know that happens. But 
Do you remember the time that you first tasted what was going to become the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale? I do. And we were just, I was going over the history as well recently, and Ken had 10 Pale Ale recipes before he settled on the one that was going to be the final. And it all featured Cascade hops. And I've got to say, from that first, the 10th batch, <clears throat> and now 43 years later, the recipe hasn't changed. So we still use 100% Cascade hops. What has changed is our equipment. So our equipment, going from uh, repurposed dairy tanks that my brother used for you know, his first 10-barrel brew house, now we have state-of-the-art, sophisticated equipment. So what's changed is you know, the consistency, the quality, the control that we have overbrewing the beer that's changed considerably but the beer is the same still you know the bottle pale ale still bottled condition and, and it hasn't changed and how quickly did this beer take off it's legendary you know around the world now was it one of those things that was a a lot of hard work and no for overnight success the thing didn't, <clears throat> it barely took off let's put it that way it took a while because 1980 as i mentioned the craft beers that I drank. Anchor was really the one. New Albion went out of business shortly after we tried it. Um, and people were not accustomed to a 38 IBU beer, which the pale ale was and is. Of course, now it's on the low end for IBUs, right? But 1980, that was one of the hoppiest beers available, certainly in the States and probably in the world. And it suffices to say was a an accustomed taste to a lot of people. So actually, I started doing sales, and our best friend who grew up down the street, he did sales. He was the first brewery employee. And we had a challenge when we tasted people, because I'd say 10 people tried it, eight people hated it. And they said, you guys are crazy. You're not going to last more than two months because this beer is undrinkable. But those that did love it, they said, this is the best beer I've ever had, and they would tell their friends. So the word of mouth spread, and it took a while. And for the first um, nine years, we used our 10-barrel system, and I think the first year we sold 800 U.S. barrels, then the next year 1,200 U.S. barrels, and then it would be 2,000. So it wasn't rapid. It was gradual. And that allowed us to expand at a, at a reasonable pace. So um, it took a while. We had some help. Grateful Dead loved our beer. <laughs> Jerry Garcia, his favorite beer was our porter. So they specified in the writer that every concert that they had, they have to have Sierra Nevada beer. So all the deadheads would do their tailgating in the, in the stadiums parking lots, and that's how it spread the word of, of uh, us, and we were fortunate to be in some magazines as well, and newspapers, so. How many Grateful Dead concerts have you been to? I think, I think Terrence claims I've been to, to... I've been to zero, but Terrence has been to several hundred, I think. That's exactly... Terrence always holds... I must holds. say, I wasn't the biggest Grateful Dead fan. I had my other bands that I liked. <laughs> it begs a number of questions, because my next question is sort of music-related as well, which okay. is... Uh, with a beer like this, it is such a classic. How do you feel about travelling around the world and talking about a beer that started out 
40 years ago? Is it a bit like Don McLean having to play American Pie at the end of every well, concert? Or but I, I still enjoy it. I love talking about the history of the beer, and I love interacting with people around the world. And um, it's still... I gotta say, after 43 years, it's still fun for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. So, I, I certainly, I certainly enjoy it, and I enjoy meeting people. And it's always fun to meet fellow beer drinkers and beer aficionados, and you know, the craft, the craft world is so much fun. And meeting other brewers, other breweries, because I often say this: that craft brewing is unlike any other business that we're so collaborative we share ideas with one another we make beer together we do events together we drink a lot of beer together so <laughs> it's a great it's a great industry and it's so much fun so i should be a retirement age but i don't think i'm ready yet Excellent. We, we, that's an excellent answer. We're, as we're talking here at Beer Deluxe, the hazy little thing is coming out and landing in front of the people who are in front of I us. I see it. I almost smell it right here, too. <laughs> so. Well, let's start to talk then about, about the hazy little thing. When did this beer enter the world? This beer entered the world January 2018, I believe. So not that long ago. No. So... Hazy beers were a phenomenon on the east coast of the states, and the idea was to have a beer that was sort of opposite to what we were doing on the west coast, which were very hoppy, bitter beers, but have a beer that is hoppy in flavor, but low in bitterness, and um, became popular in style. And then we've had a lot of people, we had a lot of people coming up to us and say, why don't you guys make a hazy IPA, your IPA guys, and... We were sort of reluctant, and we knew that the hazy beers weren't very stable. They didn't have a long shelf life. But we, the brewers wanted the challenge, and they wanted to come up with, see how they could make a beer that would be shelf-stable. So they worked for six months or so and went through all sorts of different recipes and ideas and came up with this beer, and we didn't know how it would be received. But it turns out that... For five years, the beer's been going like this and this and this, and I've got to say, I don't know if it's... I've got to say, I don't know if it's my disappointment, but it has now surpassed Pale Ale as our number one selling beer. So we, we sort of lucked into this, and um, it's an easy beer to drink. It's fairly low in IBUs. It's 6.7%, I believe, alcohol. Um, but it doesn't taste like it. And just, I think, 50 IBUs. It's just easy drinking beer. And, and I got to say, a lot of us at the brewery like it. We drink it a lot. It's our, some of us, it's our go-to beer, pale ale and this. Was there a bit of a resistance within the organization? I mean, you're just so well-known for that West Coast style. Yeah. Did branding people come in and say, no, you can't do it, it'll mess with our brand? Yes, we were sort of, we were sort of reluctant and... We had just switched brewmasters. Our original brewmaster, well, my brother was our original, but the first outside brewmaster we had, Steve Dresler, had been with us for 35 years, and he had just retired, and we had a new brewmaster come in, and he was tasked with, tasked with coming up with a hazy, so he was anticipating receiving a lot of flack that he comes into the brewery, and now he's doing this hazy thing, but... Um, 
we had, you know, a bit of trepidation, but we went ahead with it anyway because we liked the beer, and we're glad that we did. Is there, I mean, it's a magnificent beer, as you say, but I think I could happily drink this all night. Mm-hmm. Is there something about it that makes it a essentially Sierra Nevada beer? How do you make sure that when you take on a style like that, it I still think, represents? Uh, yeah, and I think one of the hallmarks of Sierra Nevada is our consistency and we really straight and balance. So the two hallmarks are consistency and balance, and this beer is very, very well balanced, and which makes it very drinkable. Even our, as we will see later, our really hoppy beers are balanced, and, and, and it adds to the drinkability. So I think that's what makes it a Sierra Nevada beer. And if you taste this beer here tonight, you have it somewhere else, you have it in the States or another country, or you have it in another state here, it's going to taste the same. So I think that's what makes it a Sierra Nevada beer. I'm interested to know the growth in this particular beer. Is that because the the New England IPA, the hazy style, is still a growing market, or just because this beer is growing within that market? No, I think the hazy style is a growing market. Um, And IPAs are still the number one style in the States, and I I think it is around much of the world. I think here it's pale ale still is the number one style. But IPA in the States is by far the, uh, the number one style. And, and all aspects of IPA seem like they're drinking. Now people are, are selling. People are drinking a lot of high ABV um, IPAs again. And um, IPAs, we wonder when they're going to fall out of favor, but it doesn't seem like any time soon. Are there any styles out there that are particularly emerging in the U.S. that you think will end up here? We've sort of seen things come and go. Okay. Uh, brute IPAs. I can remember. I've drunk the Sierra Nevada Brute back in the day. So yeah, we did one. Um, <laughs> a couple of styles, I think, and one I think is going to be the NA style. So non-alcoholic style is, if we can still call it beer, but mm. it's gaining in popularity. I travel around the world and. And we are coming out with one in August, so um, it's actually really good. But um, uh, I think that style, and I would like to see, and, and I don't know if it's gaining popularity. I see there's one on tap here that I tried that was very nice, Pilsner's. So I think Pilsner Craft is a style that is going. we're going to see more of because it's just a great style. It's very drinkable. It's clean. It's fresh, refreshing. Um, and I, there's no reason why, I don't, why Kraft Pilsner shouldn't have more traction. I think that'll be happening. Are those trends that you see coming out of America or around the world, do you think there is sort of a bit of a difference between where some of these trends emerge from, or is America still like a driving force in, in the well, world? Well, I don't want to be a homer, but I think, uh, <laughs> I think we've got close to 10,000 breweries now. So with all those brewers experimenting, I think, you know, they're trying everything. So I think styles are still originating there. I was in Italy, though, and I saw a lot, a couple months ago, and there was a lot of wine hybrid beers. Um, so that's a style that there must have been a dozen breweries at this festival that I was at doing wine. But we've done a couple. I did some in beer camps. Um, but I think America... I, I don't know. It's, it's such a small world now with uh, the Internet that everyone knows what everyone's doing. So if someone does something five minutes ago, then the guy in another country is going to start it. So 
It's a, it's a global it's a global global craft market. Well, as as you've noted and as we've said uh, many times on the podcast, we're seeing a new generation of West Coast IPAs emerge. We might have a little break up here uh, so that people can enjoy their hazy little things, and we'll come back in a few minutes' time to start to talk about the Torpedo IPA. Sounds good. And we'll welcome Steve back to the microphone with two fun beers in front of us. Steve, how are the crowd here? And they're very quiet. Maybe they're eating. That's a bit more like yeah, it. That's good. We, we have two fun beers in front of us. This is one of those moments where I could be very embarrassed because we're going to kick off with the traditional torpedo IPA. I presume that's the one that is closest to my hand, or have I got that terribly wrong and I need to... No, you have not. You're right. <laughs> it's a, always a dangerous game to play. Uh, let's talk about just picking up from where we left off with the pale ale earlier on. What's the difference that we should be tasting when we taste the torpedo compared to the pale ale? Okay, well, the torpedo has a lot of distinguishing factors from the pale ale. For one, alcohol, 7.2%. Um, IBUs, 65. And it is dry hopped. And pale ale is not dry hopped. Even though we get great aromas with a pale ale, we do a lot of late additions, it's not dry hopped. So as we pick up the beer nerdistry, and we're going to get a move in that direction, so what does dry hopping mean? Who knows what dry hopping is? Well, we lost a few. We did lose a few. Good. Okay. So dry hopping is when we... Let's start with what hops do to a beer, what the characteristics are. So hops have a few characteristics. Let's say the first one is bittering. And... The bittering aspect of the, the alpha acids, they come out of the hops when you boil it. But they also have aromatic qualities, the hops do. When the hops are boiled, their aromatic qualities go away. They get boiled away. So we add hops at various different times during the process in the kettle or in fermentation. So as we add the hops later late additions in the kettle it will extract a little less bitterness and a little more aromatics you can take that a step further and add the hops to the fermenters and what it does then is extract a lot of aromatics but no bitterness so a lot of brewery we we had an issue we have we use whole cone hops primarily and they're much harder to dry hop. So dry hopping is the process where we put the hops in the fermenter. And whole cones have to, we put them in bags to, traditionally you put them in like big tea bags and they soak in the fermenter. It's a very inefficient way to utilize the hops. Uh, takes quite a while and then it's very unwieldy when we try to remove them. First of all, we need to use two different fermenters, uh, transfer it over, and they weigh several hundred pounds when they're filled with beer. And for one, 
hard to handle, too it's wasteful. Yes, yeah, so there's beer going. Every time you pull out a bag yes. like that, there's yes, liters of liters of beer. you lose a lot of beer. Hmm. And the hop utilization isn't very good that way. So my brother wanted to come up with a way to dry hop more efficiently. So we came up with an external system, an external vessel, which we pack with 75 pounds of hops, Holcone hops. And, of course, it's purged with CO2 to make sure that there's no oxygen in there. And we recirculate the beer out of the fermenter into that vessel over and over for a period of several days. Sort of like a big, if you ever, I don't know if they have much anymore, but coffee percolators, where the coffee goes over and over. The, that's what we do with the beer. And when we made the prototype, um, the original vessel was a horizontal vessel. We packed it with hops this way. And it was sort of an experimental thing, but a couple of visitors came into our um, brew house and said, what's that torpedo-looking thing doing in the brewery? <laughs> and when we were trying to come up with a name for this beer, I said, well, torpedo sounds pretty good. Yeah. So now, after we made the prototypes, we did the production vessels, and they're vertical. So they look more like rocket ships, but we couldn't change the name. It was too late. So um, this beer is interesting because it was also the first beer that utilized the citra hop. So we feature citra. There's three hops in this beer. Citra is one of them, magnum, and then um, what's the other beer? Magnum, other hop, magnum, citra, and... It'll come to me in a minute. Is it another one of the big C's? Or? No, it isn't. It's not one of the big C's. It'll come to me when I finish my story, probably. Yeah. You can throw in your Simcoe's, your Galaxies. No, not one of those. Um, crystal. Sorry, it's a C. It's a little C. It's Crystal. Yeah. So um, I forgot what I was going to say now, going, uh, going off on a tangent. There's three hops in there. Oh, so the... Um, the hop that I was, that we're going to, I'm forgetting what my, what now I forget my first hop that I'm talking about. That's what happens when one is jet lagged. Well, let's, let's keep things, so are they different hops, obviously, from what we were having in the pale ale Yes, they're well? totally different hops, yes. Uh-huh. So uh, the citra hop, this one, now, now I'm remembering my story, so. <laughs> That's right, I'm here to help. It's another sea hop, so. We, use, we, we got an experimental hop from the hop grower. There were two breweries that got this hop, and we started using it, and we thought, this is a great hop. And we started putting it into production, and the hop grower said, well, since you're the first, guys, first brewery to use it, do you want to name it? And do you want to name it a Sierra Nevada hop? And we didn't think that was a good idea, so... Did you want to call it Steve? No, I didn't want to. <laughs> so they came up with the name Citra, and that's how the Citra hop came about. Uh, many years ago. That's a, you've, I had no idea about that story. You've genuinely taken my breath away a little bit with that one. That's well, I just made it up on the, on the fly. But. <laughs> it's all right. I'm, I'm sure when Terence and Byron are on the show, they make up a lot they of things. Will, so. Terence and Byron will verify the validity of the story, actually. <laughs> um, this, I, I'm really interested to hear how this beer was received by the market. Given what you were saying about the pale ale, so the pale ale at the time was uh, not liked by eight out of ten people. It was something that was too full on at about 36 IBU. Mm -hmm. 
now we've moved on to a bigger hop. Yes. When did this beer come out and was the market ready yeah, for it? I can't remember when. The, we just had the anniversary. Was it... I can't remember. 10 years? 20 years. I can't remember right now. But this beer was received. 8 out of 10 people liked it. They didn't hate it. So uh, the market, the consumer had become much more educated and certainly used to hops. So when this came out at 65 IBUs, they were used to it, and it was a, uh, a hit from the beginning. And for many years, it was the number one selling IPA in the United States. I'm interested to sort of pick up on those questions we were having before, that discussion we were having before about beer trends, and you were saying you're going to release a non-alcoholic beer. We certainly see a trend towards lighter beers in Australia. This goes the other way. Uh, how do you think people sort of feel about beers that are over 7% now as a, as a regular? Well, beer? in the States, the trend now is for high alcohol beers. I, I don't understand it because my trend's going for lower alcohol <laughs> beers as I get a little older. But um, high alcohol beers, I'm surprised. They're, they're still quite popular. And I think uh, some of the best-selling beers, the new IPAs that are coming out in the States, are, are higher alcohol. So, um, and is, seven, doing well. is sort of seven, seven and a half percent considered high alcohol in America now, or is it a no? <laughs> it's considered session right now. Not really. <laughs> no, a lot of beers are in the eight, nine percent range. So, well, I, I consider seven point two pretty high right now. So. I, I think I would do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so we have two beers that are notionally called Torpedo. Let's have them side by side and let's make sure that I get the phrasing and the naming of the second one correct. So here we have a Cryo Fresh Torpedo Wet Hop. Is that correct? And people at the bar can yell out because they're the ones standing closest to the decal. So I can, I can read the Torpedo from here. That's I can't pretty, read anything else. That's correct. So, the situation with the cryo fresh hop, so there's a process. Fresh hops are the most aromatic that, when they're picked. So, most hops are, are dried after they're picked because hops are very volatile. They have an extremely short shelf life unless they're, they're dried. Um, we made one of the first wet hop beers with our uh, Harvest Ale many, many years ago. And um, those beers, you have to use the hops within you know, 48 hours after picking. It's sort of, you know, logistically, it's very, very challenging. Um, so most hops are, are dried. And, and, and also they can start composting, and there have been fires in some of the hop facilities. Because oh, that's my kind hop. of story. I love a good fire or explosion yeah, story. So there's been... Quite a, quite a bit of hops lost through fire over the years. But anyway, what they do with, with this beer, they take the hops, pick them, freeze them, and then there's a new process that you can get the lupulin powder out of it, and the lupulin powder has what, all the flavor and everything, and, and the acids, alpha acids, beta acids. And they use that powder, and it's called cryo. And so there's regular cryo, then there's fresh hop cryo, which is... You know, just picked. So this beer utilizes the cryo, and I was just reading about it. Um, it was experimental. 
by one of the hop growers, and we were the first ones to make a commercial beer out of it. This was the first commercial. So, so just to be clear, an experimental hop in this. In well, this experimental process. Right. Not an experimental hop. Okay. So which hops are we tasting in this particular beer? We've got beer? three here. We've got Cit Citra, we've got Simcoe, and we've got Cascade. All, all um, fresh hop. And so, again, similar hops to what we've been having in some of the previous beers, but treated in a different way. Yes. So this is 7% ABV and I believe 40 IBUs, so much lower IBUs than the regular Torpedo, but you'll find less bitterness, but still a tremendous hop flavor. You get these, this aroma coming out of this that's really amazing. And you can see there's a definite difference in color between these two. And so we use some caramelized malt, which is sort of the old West Coast style of uh, IPAs. This is all Pilsner malt and, and pale Turo malt. So very light. So what this does is really emphasize the hops. The malt doesn't get in the way. So this really all hops come through on this. So that's why we can have 40 IBUs as opposed to 65 and still get the essence of the hops coming through very strongly. And so I guess that's the other obvious question. We've spent a bit of time talking about hops. What we haven't really explored is the role of malt, even just in things like the colour. So the two beers that we had to begin with, the pale ale and the hazy, uh, very contrasting colours. Again, quite contrasting colours here. Mm -hmm. What are the processes that are applied to the malts? What is malt for those people who are new to the show? Malt is barley that goes through a germination process and it starts like the seed thinks that it's growing and then that process is stopped because what it does, it, it, it grows some enzymes in there that eventually will be able to get converted into alcohol. So when they stop that growing process, they uh, dry it out, and then they go through a roasting process, sort of like coffee does. So you'll have a light roast, medium roast, dark roast, etc. Malt can do the same thing. So you can just dry it, it'll be pale, and as you roast longer, the color changes, and as you'll see in the final beer, we're going to have the narwhal, it's black, and so um, that changes the characteristics of the malt, the flavors, and the sweetness. When you have a, a caramelized malt, you'll get more malt sweetness out of it. And we use that to balance the bitterness that we get from uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the hops put in there, the IBUs. The higher IBU, in order to get a beer that's fairly drinkable, you want to have some of the sweetness from the malt to balance that out. And so how do you make sure that all that sweetness doesn't get converted to alcohol by the yeasts? Is, it, is that something where you've got to actually stop that process? or? So that's done in the mash tun where you convert the starches to fermentable sugars. And there's certain degrees that we treat that at. We, we, we have the mash at certain temperatures throughout the process. And you kill off some of the fermentable sugars at certain temperatures. And so that's how you adjust that you control how much fermentable you're going to have and how much residual sweetness you'll have. 
Now, I'm fascinated. One of the things that makes Sierra Nevada Sierra Nevada is that you're constantly tweaking and doing new things with your traditional recipes like this. And for people who are listening to the podcast, uh, they may have had the chance to buy some of the other beers that are available through our website, like the Atomic Torpedo uh, and even the Big Little Thing. So this is not the end of the IPA journey with you guys at all, is it? No, it is not. And as we just discussed a little while ago about the alcohols getting up there, yes, Atomic Torpedoes in the high eight range, nine range, and we are adjusting all the time. And, you know, we like to experiment. We like to change things up. We keep our flagship beers the same, but it's always fun and... uh, Educational for us to make different beers and to see what, how the consumer reacts. How does that process work? Who has the idea of the next thing? Is it just people in the brew house, or do you, do Ken, to sort of sort of say? It used to be people in the brew house. We have two pilot breweries, and we often let the pilot brewers play around and experiment. And other times, Ken will have a project that he wants to you know, develop further and see how it's going to go. Sometimes we now have a marketing team, and sometimes now the marketing people have ideas, and they're out doing panels, and they're out doing consumer research. What's the next new trend? So there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of input involved into what beer is made now. In the past, originally, it was what Ken liked to do, what he liked to drink. So the first beers were obviously what Ken liked to drink. And his feeling was, you know, when we started the brewery, he said, I'm making beer that I like, and if I don't sell it, I'll have plenty of beer to drink myself. So that was... <laughs> that was when the production was obviously slightly different scale to what it is now. Well, he drank a lot of back then, I think, too, so I don't know. <laughs> and we're presuming that Ken will never listen to this, so we're allowed to say that. Good, things. I hope not. <laughs> Steve... Here we are. We've got the narwhal in front of us. We've got the can in front of us so that I can be sure we're talking about the right one. Could you please lead us on a little tasting tour of what we're finding in the glass? Okay. Well, let me talk about narwhal in general first. Narwhal is an imperial stout that we started brewing, oh, I guess about eight or nine years ago. And interestingly, the first beer that Ken ever brewed was a stout. And it was the first beer at the 10-barrel brewery that he built because, actually, if he had any flaws, the stout would mask that. So he was, didn't want to take any chances. Um, but Narwhal's an imperial stout. Um, I think one of the best beers we've come out with in many, many years when it came out. It was fantastic and still is. And generally, it's 10.2% alcohol, the regular Narwhal. And 60 IBUs. Um, we use a couple different hops in this, Cascade and Yukonot. But we happen to have the barrel-aged version tonight. So it picked up a bit of alcohol. I think we're at uh, 11.9 now. So done in bourbon barrels. And so we pick up a little alcohol from the re- residual, what's left in the bourbon barrel. And... Uh, through evaporation. So it intensifies the flavors, the aromas. You get some coconut in here. Um, 
Narwhal also uses a little bit of smoked malt. So you're going to get a smokiness from the original Narwhal as well. And I have an interesting story about Terrence. We were talking about him earlier, one of our compatriots at the brewery. When we first started getting into uh, barrel aging many, many years ago, um, there was a hop shortage in, well, worldwide. But we commissioned years out, so we, we have contracts with the hop growers. So we had a lot of hops. Uh, and there are a few breweries, one being Brewdog, came to us and asked us if we could trade. This was many years ago. Asked us if we could trade. <laughs> asked us if we could uh, trade hops for whiskey barrels. So we said, sure. So we got a container of whiskey barrels, and our friend Terrence had the job of unloading the whiskey barrels. And there was still residual whiskey left in the barrels and in the container. When Terrence was done unloading those barrels, he had to take a very long nap at the brewery. <laughs> and don't let him listen to this podcast, please. Okay. Yeah, I, I would never do that. But it's anyway, we, we do a lot of different barrel-age products. Um, Narwhal's one. The big beers lend themselves very well to um, doing uh, barrel-age beers. So being a bourbon barrel, you can get a lot of vanilla from that oak, and so that comes out in the nose. Um, as well as I said, the smoke and a lot of uh, the characteristics from the bourbon itself come out in, in this in this beer. I think it's really good, and you get a little sweetness too from the um, oxidation. The beer gets a little more concentrated and intensified. So I haven't had this one for a little while. It's it's. I'm going to say it's drinkable, but I'm not going to. I wouldn't recommend drinking too much of it because now we've kicked away up. Um, well, you're very good health. <laughs> thank you. There's, there's a number of questions I have out of that. Uh, and the first of which is, and this is one of those things I've learnt through my beer journey, is that I always imagined that a bourbon barrel or a scotch barrel would arrive at a brewery essentially dried out and just sort of waiting to receive a liquid. But genuinely, they're not. But so this is—I would never have guessed how much liquid arrives inside the barrel. There's and what liquid Terrence... in there that's wet. Yes, you can. Terence can vouch for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make him. We love our T-shirts here in the cool room. We'll make him a special wet Terence T-shirt just okay. to show. Uh, I'm. The crowd were bound to fire up sooner or later, so here they are, they're part of it. I I love this beer because of the way that you can have a single sip and it will change on your palate over time. There are different flavours. For people, again, who are new to craft beer, they might not have experienced a beer that is so uh, intense and has so many different flavours. They may never have experienced how a beer like this will open up as it warms Mm. and is exposed to the air. Can you talk to that, to people who are experiencing a beer like this place? Yeah, sure. Um, Beers like this are very complex, and there are a lot of flavors that obviously are are in this beer, and a lot of nuances. And as the beer warms up, different characteristics are going to emanate, and I suggest sipping this very slowly like you would uh, uh, scotch or something or or a bourbon, as this is in a bourbon barrel, and, and the nuances will come out as it warms up, and I see some of you warming in your hand. Um, that's a good way to warm it up as well. So starting cold, you'll get certain flavors come out. 
And then as it warms up, you might get a little more of the hops come out. Certainly more of the vanilla will come out in the aromatics. And, and what I do like about this beer is the viscosity that it has on the palate. It's nice and thick. And I think that comes about one from the beer being so big to start out with and a little bit of the evaporation that will, you know, thicken as well so the water will evaporate out. And there's a lot, a lot going on here. I think I've got about three questions left, and then we're going to throw to the audience, so make sure that you have your audience questions ready in advance. But this is where we start to get to the tricky questions. Uh, it's a bit like asking someone who is their favourite child. I know. But out of 40, 45 years of Sierra Nevada, is there one beer from the entire journey that stands out to you? Yes, I've got to say. Well, I would say pale ale if I was politically correct, but I'm going to say Celebration Ale. It's my favorite beer. It's really the first West Coast-style IPA. It was the first beer we dry hopped. Um, we make it still to this day, um, although that beer did change a bit in that originally we did the traditional bag dry hopping, and now we do a combination torpedo and, and bag. So um, it's still my favorite beer. And when we get a good hop crop, I remember talking to my brother a couple years ago when, it, when that version just came out, and I called him up and I said, hey, this is the best celebration that we've done for years because the hops were so good. And he said, yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's, hops are an agricultural crop, so every year is going to be different. So different characteristics, different intensities, and I look forward to that every year to see what the hops are doing because it's we don't make that beer till we pick the hops. And um, my favorite beer. It's a great answer, and it's a great beer, obviously. If you ever get the chance, uh, the good people from Phoenix do bring it out. Most years when they get the chance, it's an absolute ripping beer, so grab it if you see it. It never lasts long in Australia. Uh, a bit... A bit of a similar question, or move, which is, is there a particular moment in your journey with Sierra Nevada that you look back or you say, wow, it's just been amazing to be part of this craft beer revolution. You've been at the very centre of it. <laughs> These hecklers, I don't know. Yeah, other, I don't other, know than, them other than sitting here tonight, which obviously is the highlight of your entire, you know... <laughs> Well, that's a good question because when you're in the journey, you don't really realize you're just working at it and you don't really get to the point. But I think something that you alluded to earlier maybe stands out in that I talked to a lot of people that say Sierra Nevada was the first craft beer that I ever tried. And a lot of brewers say that too. So maybe that was when it first hit. Um, I think that probably that probably would be it. I mean, there's a, there have been a lot of milestones and a lot of highs, but maybe that would be it. I I, I don't know that. You know, we helped create a movement and in industry. It's yeah. a, you you really did. So many people refer, particularly to the pale ale, but so many of the beers that you've been associated with over the years as integral in their journey into, first of all, trying craft beer, 
and then trying a whole range of different craft beers. Uh, and for me as well, uh, we speak often on the podcast about actually stopping and saying, wow, isn't it amazing that you get to have these experiences. And for me tonight, I just want to say to everyone who's here in the crowd, to the, peer, the team from Beer Deluxe, it's amazing for me to be here with you all tonight. Uh, and and, and can, I, can I add to that? They're just saying I do a lot of events now around the world and just meeting craft beer aficionados like we have here tonight is really rewarding and getting to talk to you and share ideas, experiences is, is great. So I guess that's why I keep doing this after so many years and it's, it's fun. It's very rewarding. So, so I want to thank you also for enjoying craft beer. Two questions to go. Two questions to go and we'll throw the audience. Uh, one is, obviously if you don't have a DeLorean and you can't travel back in time to the 1980s and start a craft, <laughs> craft brewery with your brother, what advice would you give to people who are here tonight, who are listening to the podcast and going, this is an industry that I want to be part of, how should they get involved? What's the, what should they have in their hearts? I'm going I'm to say, are you sure you want to get in this industry <laughs> right now? It's, it's a challenging industry. It always has been for different reasons. But now, as I mentioned earlier, we have almost 10,000 breweries in the States. And what do you have here? How, how many here now? A lot. A lot. Between 600 and 700. Yeah, 600, 700. It's a challenging time. It always has been. In the States, I don't think it's here yet, but we're finding that Many consumers, especially the young Gen Zers, aren't drinking as much. They're not drinking beer. They're not drinking much alcohol. They don't seem to have any vices. I don't know what's wrong with them. But um, so it's it's a challenge. But but I would say if you're gonna if you are gonna get into this business, and I would encourage you if you're passionate about it, I would encourage you to do it. And and if it's a life's dream, make the best beer you possibly can. Don't cut corners. Um, even if it's taking you longer than you would like it to perfect. As I said, my brother had 10 recipes of pale ale and dumped them all prior. Make sure you're doing it right because you only have really one chance to meet that consumer, to reach that consumer. If they're not happy, they're going to go on to someone else. So quality, quality, quality is what I always stress. Brilliant answer. I'm going to encourage people now to come and line up over here in a way that will encourage some sort of terrible stampede. We've got time for four or five questions and we will uh, ask them on mic. So if you have a question, come and line up. And while people are doing that, I'm going to ask... Oh, no. I'm going to ask our final question, but it's the question which is very close to my heart. It is the traditional cool room question. The podcast is called The Cool Room. The podcast is called The Cool Room, not because I'm cool, not because of any person who's associated with it is cool, but because The Cool Room is what breaks down. The Cool Room is where the story is really told. Uh, everyone always thinks everyone has, is having a great night on a Friday night when they walk into a pub or a venue, but they're not there on Monday morning with the wrenches and the grease and the WD-40 trying to make the call room work. What's the most confronting, the strangest, 
amusing thing you've ever seen okay. in a cold storage facility. Well, this, not, this might not be about the equipment, but I have a, I guess a cold storage story that happened early on in our existence. Um, we used to have big parties at the brewery when we had 10, 15 employees, and we'd invite all our friends to come. Big bonfire outside is when we released Celebration Ale. We'd have Christmas parties. So I invited a friend of mine up, and he was uh, is a big beer aficionado, and he was a big man as well. And he was hitting the Celebration Ale quite vigorously that one night. <laughs> and about midnight... I couldn't find him. I was trying to get him back to his hotel. I couldn't find him. Finally, I did find him in the cool room, passed out, and couldn't rouse him, and he said he wanted to sleep in there. So we did lock him in, and the next morning I was very nervous about what I was going to find. And he Rightly was, so. Yeah, and... I think he was, uh, I'm trying to get my kilo, I think he was about 120 kilos, so I couldn't move him anyway. So here I get there at 8 in the morning, and this was when we had kegs everywhere. We had a keg in the cool room, a celebration ale, of course. So 8 in the morning, I find him. I don't know what I'm going to find. I see him drinking a pint of celebration ale. <laughs> so every, everything worked out. So I was just... That just popped into my head about a cool room story, so anyway. That's a, that's a great answer. I've got to say that I fully endorse your answer about what people should be doing if they want to be involved in the industry. For anyone who's listening for tips, locking people in cool rooms overnight is not that's an endorsement. That's probably not a good idea. We didn't have an HR department then either, so luckily... <laughs> Uh, we are very lucky to have some people lining up to ask some questions. We'll ask them to be succinct in their questions and succinct in their answers. But it's fantastic to be, uh, to be joining so many people here live in the call room. Just give us your name and ask your question. Uh, Nelson. And I just wanted to know, did Sierra Nevada do sour beers? And if so, what is the one sour beer that we have to try from Sierra Nevada? Yes, we did sour beers. We still do some sour beers. Did you, did you bring any in? Mm. What do you have in? What? We've, we've done some sour beers. We're not doing too many right now. We have one called Sunny Little Thing, and it actually just won a silver medal at the World Beer Cup two weeks ago. So... If we can try it here, I don't know if we're going to get it, but I'll try so we've done, we've done a few sours. I'm not, a, I'm not a sour beer fan, but I know a lot of people are, so we've done some. I can't have a second question. No, you can't. Yeah, no, no, no second question. There'll be plenty of time after the show, so. Uh, hi, I'm Scotty. Just uh, sharing about a drinker for 25 years. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite beers is Brow Pucks, the collab with Vinus um, Hapner. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Bandcamp and how you picked the collabs for that? Okay, so that collaboration actually took place. The idea was planted in Australia. So I was with Leif, and the, the sales manager from Vine Stefan, we were at dinner. Marcus, we were at dinner one night, 
and we drank a lot of beers. And we had been doing, starting to do a collaboration beers with German breweries for our Oktoberfest release. So I said, hey, Marcus, wouldn't Wine Stefan want to do a collaboration with us? And this was like eight months or ten months prior to when we were going to do it, or maybe the previous year even. And he said, yeah, I was going to ask you the same thing if you wanted to collaborate. So that's where the Vine Stefan collaboration took place. So we did a, we did a, uh, their head brewer came to our brewery, and we did our Oktoberfest beer. Our head brewer went to Vine Stefan, and we did the Brow Pact. So then we did kickoffs. We did a kick. Actually, I did with with the brewer. We did a kickoff in Hollywood. Actually, was the first kickoff for the Brow Pact. They might have done something in Germany. So that's how that collaboration came about. It was fun, and people still talk about that beer. They still talk great. about that beer. They still talk about Marcus being here upstairs well, at Beer Deluxe last Mar- year. I think Marcus is here quite often. So yes, uh, uh, Marcus. Marcus had to explain that he was mauled by lions last time he was in Sydney due to the facial injuries he'd suffered along the way. Here's a man who knows his way around a beer. I don't know about that, David, but we'll see how we go. Lovely to see you, Steve. Thank you very much for coming over. It looks like you're going to settle in now. Oh, Oh, yeah, no, I'll I'll do that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it could could take a little while anyway. So... This is what happens when you're a VIP, you know? It's like... Um, so, first of all, awesome to see you, Steve. Thank you very much for coming along. Amazing. Um, as a bit of an American whiskey and bourbon enthusiast, um, I'm curious about sort of for the, um, the bourbon barrel-aged beers in particular um, because I've, I've seen uh, that there's uh, Bigfoot that's barrel-aged in E.H. Taylor casks, for example, so very much, you know, specific to that. Yeah, yeah. And, sorry, apologies for the ultra-bourbon nerd kind of thing, but um, I'm just curious about, because obviously American whiskey and bourbon has a very wide uh, flavour profile in terms of depending on the rye content Mm -hmm. and uh, whether it's a wheat-based, you know, uh, as well. So... How much sort of um, goes into it, the thought from the Sierra Nevada side of things to when you're, you're choosing barrels to age the, the bourbon in or that sort of thing or the, or the, the, the yeah, beer in the bourbon? That's a great question. We do put a, a lot of thought into what barrels we're using and also, but it still boils down to availability. We have a broker that gets us barrels. What's available at the time? Do we want them? I know I was in the barrel room a while ago. There was a lot of Heaven Hill barrels in there. So it just depends what's, uh, what's available. And that E.H. Taylor was a, was a special project that we did with them. And um, it came out uh, quite nicely. I don't know if you were able to no, try I was, it. I was, look, I was, I was you know, blown away when I saw it because I love E.H. Taylor. I've only yeah. had the small batch. Um, yeah. But... When I saw that, I was like, wow, this is like a marriage of one of my yeah. all-time favorite breweries. That was and sort a of a project. They came to us with that idea. Right. So, yeah. Okay, okay. So, I happen to have about four bottles left in my cellar. If you'd like so to send one to me, that's next fine. Time that's I can, not a next problem. time I can to Australia, no. You guys sent us one case. <laughs> you got one case? There you go, Leif. The, heckler, the hecklers may be someone you should talk to, so... 
yeah. I've grabbed that microphone yeah, back because I've never seen yeah. a man look more comfortable in a chair with a microphone yeah. than... <laughs> Hi. Bit of a boring question. What's your name? Brin Brinley. Okay, Brinley. Um, from a home brewer's point of view, yes. I love that the pale ale recipe is up there online and multiple sources. Mm -hmm. How many variants are there, or how much is it changed because of to protect intellectual property? The recipe? Yeah, the recipe. Hasn't changed. Okay, cool. <laughs> now... I, cha I challenge you to make one exactly the same because your equipment's different, but, yeah. yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, Long-time drinker, first-time caller. Oh, there you go. Okay. Hi. I'm Kim. Hey, Kim. Um, a very important question. So when you're done with us and when you're done with Sydney... What's your first beer when you get home? You get off the plane, you just, oh, I'm finally home. What's your first beer? Who said that? And if it's not North Coast, Old Rasputin, where we're at. <laughs> Hint, Phoenix, I'm just saying. That's a good question. It's going to be depend when I get off the plane or when I get home. It's probably going to be something non-alcoholic because I'm trying to keep up with the Australian drinkers here and it's, it's not going to be easy. So, but otherwise, what I have at home, I always have pale ale. So that's what it's going to be. I uh, see so you've played Knifey Spoonie before. So. Hi, I'm Sarah and um, I'm a brewer. I brew lagers, but I absolutely love your beers. Um, Wait a second, sir. We brew, brew lagers too, so yeah, good. don't well, exclude those. We, we don't, I, I haven't seen them in Australia, so anyway, it's all good. Um, but look, I'm, um, so as a lager brewer, it, it's all about yeast for, yeast for us, so you use a lot of hops. How do you, how do, you do you reuse your yeast? How do you make that work? How do we use the yeast? Do you reuse? So oh, you yeah. reharvest? Yeah, we do. How, we, how, how do you make that work? We have several generations. Like, we probably yeah. use for our pale ale, I forget where we're at now, but eight to twelve generations. Yeah, nice. And we, yeah, we use it as long as it's still viable. We yeah. check the, we do counts all the time, and, and so for our lagers, we separating use separating the hops. And so for like separating the hops from the yeast, you know, you, you find that works all right. <laughs> They're at the, they settle down. The yeast settles down, so. The hops are, the hops are gone before they're fermenting, right? Yes. So there's generally, unless we're dry hopping, there's no hops in the fermenter. We've, so we we just harvest the yeast out of the fermenters. Is that was that your question? We've Is we've got enough? a couple more people in the line. We may be, we may have time to add one or two more people to the line, and then we're going to have to close it off. Uh, and it's fantastic to have so many people with so many questions in their minds. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's sitting down. Okay. 
So I've always looked up to Sierra Nevada as being this trailblazer, this leader in the craft beer industry. And something that I'm curious about is often when we look around the room or um, in the industry, it can look really homogenous. And I'm curious what Sierra Nevada is doing to encourage diversity either within um, your industry as employment or in terms of your audience. We have a specific person on staff. That's our diversity. Um, we have training constantly concerning diversity. Um, it's really important to us to be super inclusive. And so we've been working on that for quite a while. It's really, really important to us. So we have a team that, that, that works. We actually just had diversity training like two weeks ago. We have online training. So... I'm pretty well versed, so it's 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 an it's very important for us. What's that? I think we have we have one more audience question, question, and then we're going to wrap things up for the recorded portion of the evening. Yeah. I was like, apparently, I'm the last one in line. But narwhal, are they real? And is your wife a marine biologist that can verify? Narwhals are no. Okay. Narwhals are definitely real. So the story I have, I was doing a presentation when Narwhal first came out. Uh, not my wife at the time, but we were dating. It was the first trip. She went to London with me. And I was doing a presentation to a big group at a, at a pub in London. It was actually called the White Horse upstairs. And we were kicking off Narwhal. And so... I was talking about narwhals, and I invited my then-girlfriend up to talk about narwhals because she had marine biology training. Actually, here in Adelaide, she went to Flinders University and took a lot of courses. But So I had her come up, and she was not happy with me putting her on the spot. But I thought she was the most appropriate person to discuss narwhals. And... She still married me after that a few years later, but she just brought that, she brought that up to me last week, how I put her on the spot. So it's still a sore point, I think, uh, nine years later or ten years later. So anyway, yes, there are narwhals. That is a, a wonderfully cool, roomy moment to be finishing things up on. I do note that our last interlocutor didn't give her name, but as she walks away, we see that she has a tattoo of a narwhal on her shoulder. So, uh, to everyone who has joined us on the podcast version of this, a big thank you to living uh, to living in to listening into a very special episode. To everyone who is here upstairs at Beer Deluxe on a Wednesday night, a huge thank you for coming along and give yourselves a cheer. But most especially, please give Steve Grossman a cheer for being here in Melbourne with us tonight. Steve, thank you so much. It's a genuine honour for me to be interviewing you here tonight. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay here in sunny Melbourne.